M-E-T-T-A. Hello and welcome to episode one of the School of Meta podcast. The amazing music that opens the podcast was composed and performed by Mr. Lucas Wooler of the band Maximo Park. And you can follow his latest musical offerings currently via his Twitter feed at Lucas Maximo Park. That's Lucas with a K. But the first episode is actually the second episode to be recorded. Confusing, I know, but as our first episode was a sort of get the ball rolling recording, this version includes edited highlights from the first and brings together a conversation with myself, Toby Can, and co-host and former school principal and educator, Christine DeLuca. In this episode, then, we attempt to share our ideas and begin a conversation about education. Oh, and we're interrupted in our dialogue when my son comes looking for a rabbit. So, without further ado, here is episode one. M-E-T-T-A. I just think we're in a really, a really important time in terms of where education can take us into the future and 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 that's well that's why we started these conversations just to to look at how relevant the present model is in kids lives and in teachers lives too yeah and i think it's kind of a slightly crass question but how do you feel that the current model is doing I, I'll, I'll go out on a limb here and I'll say the majority of schools exist for teachers and administrators right. um, and not for kids. And I don't mean to point a finger and say it's anyone's fault that they're like that, but they revolve more around the adults than the kids. That's been my, that's been a large part of my experience. Could, could you, could you expand on that a little? Um, Well, why don't you have a reaction to it first? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, okay, yeah. I suspect that you're right. I don't think it's the intention necessarily. Definitely not. That's what I mean. I, yeah. I'm not trying to say it's like set up that way. But... Yeah, but it strikes me that, I mean, I know we hear often this kind of sort of repeated narrative around... The, you know the Victorian schools model that this hasn't changed the factory setting that you get them in you churn them and you spit them out at the other end with their qualification and this is done in such a way to to kind of get kids into higher education and it's very formulaic and it and it's very reminiscent of the kind of the factory floor and and for the large part of my school experience as a teacher and a student that was my experience and I think that it is about teacher sovereignty possibly is the word much more than it is is about student agency because that's the that's the machinery right that's the kind of treadmill so for that reason I, I agree with you and and I think that that the hardest part of what you and I talk about is the knowledge that for the vast majority of teachers that's the model that they're a used to be subscribed to and i suspect also feel a kind of pride and frustration with people like you and me who are critical of it right i think there's other types of frustration as well but i'll give you an example from something that happened actually recently i'm consulting with a school 
and the person I'm, I'm working with was sharing with me about how the teachers are frustrated by the range of abilities of the kids in the class. And I just think that to me, that, that shows exactly what I mean. Like, yeah. why, why would they all be the same? Like, what belief tells us that all seven, you know, that's such an old, outdated model of education that all seven-year-olds are going to be at the same place at the end of whatever year they're in. And, and so it's just these, these kind of little things that come up that just stir me up. And I'm like, who, when did we agree that this was the way to educate? And, and when did we agree that all the kids in the class kind of had to be on the same page, you know? Yeah. So, but that's a management issue. Just like you say in a factory, you know, you've got to manage the workers, right? And if you kind of turn it on its head, the adults are not there to create things for the children to do. The role of the adult shouldn't be to be there to create things for, for children to do. Right. In other words, it should be more of a shared experience and a facilitated process yeah. rather than the teacher as the, as the nucleus creating all the activities and everything that's going to happen and then they have to manage it and they can't manage it because they've got 20 kids with different languages and different learning needs and who knows what. That's a primary model. I'm sure it's yeah. different in secondary, but, mm. but you get the gist. Yeah, yeah, gosh, yeah. I mean, I, I think it's worth kind of pointing out that a lot of the, the ideas that I, that, I, that, I, that I seek and that I want to share and discuss are not always ideas that I fully subscribe to or support. It's more that I think when, we, when we're looking for a way to, to create new schools that are more relevant and, and more able to facilitate learning in those kinds of ways, that we're going to have to do a lot of searching, aren't we? To sort Absolutely. Of, and it may be that some of those are cul-de-sacs or dead ends in their own right. Do you agree with me? Yeah, for sure. And the other thing is, like, I don't want to, like, I really don't want to get into this, like, oh, this is what's wrong and this is what doesn't work. And I don't want to get all negative because there's so many amazing things happening as well. Yeah. I mean, there's some fantastic books being written and people are exploring all kinds of new ideas that, you know... I, I do want to look at what, what's happening from a positive sense and just the fact that people are even beginning to talk about this and look at it and think about it is, is really exciting. I think it's an opportunity. There's so many more voices out there I'd love to hear from, you know? Yeah, same. Um, I just think that in order for us to create something new, we might need new ingredients. And exactly, so yeah. And new ways to put them together. I think the ingredient, it's funny, like that first podcast that you did, which I don't know if you're going to share, how you're going to share that, but yeah. it's like you have the ingredient, you know, it's like you have, okay, these are my four ingredients. And under each of those subheadings, I think there's lots of spices, if I can take <laughs> the metaphor a little further. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, and, and, but somehow you kind of have to mix it together and make it into something. And, and formula, you know, kind of, yeah. So I think that's the exciting part to me is like, yeah, I agree with all of that. M-E-T-T-A. So this is where we uh, cut the second episode and, and go back to the first, the, the opening conversation that you've just been listening to is um, a result of 
an initial provocation that I laid down for Christine, a kind of um, polemic that I um, soliloquized. And I think it's worth going back to these sort of four principles that we both share as the kind of standard for what a new paradigm of education might look like. And, and I'm sharing this because I hope that it will either be a harmony to your existing tune or perhaps create terrible dissonance with, the, the, with your hymn. But either way, I hope that it, it begins to open a dialogue which we can, which we can share. So let's begin then with this kind of manifesto. What, what, what are these alternative or progressive educational paradigms that I'm, that I'm seeking? <clears throat> well, the first is this idea that I think dominates schools currently, that good education should be a passive narrative experience. And I wholeheartedly disagree. I think good education should be an active learning experience. That, that's not to say that there isn't a space for a lecturing um, experience in education, but I, I, I cannot fathom why it's the dominant experience for schools. And I have some ideas behind why it's the dominant learning experience for schools, but I am keen to explore and, and, and share Areas where active learning happens, what it looks like, and how it can be applied to our individual contexts. I've been really lucky in my career that I've been able to open and support the opening of a range of schools, startup schools. I've visited and explored schools all over Europe and beyond, and 99.9% .9 of those schools that I have visited have been a version of that passive narrative learning experience. The, the school structure, the school rooms, the school resources have been designed with this in mind. Um, whether it be a blackboard or a whiteboard or an interactive board, those classrooms more or less look the same. Why? And I feel that this is one of the areas, one of those four areas that kind of embody this new paradigm. Let's, let's look at the challenges and pitfalls and risks and consequences of, of, of enhancing our active learning experiences for young people. So that's the first tenet, if you like, of what I hope these podcasts will explore. And the second is about democratic education. So... I was really lucky to to go and attend an open day at Summerhill, the, the, the famous A.S. Neal School in Suffolk, and and see this kind of, this front runner in, in the democratic education experience. And by the way, if you haven't yet seen it or shown it to your students, there's a fabulous BBC docudrama about Summerhill, which I, I've sort of uh, seen on YouTube and various other places. And I think it actually is also um, available on the Summerhill website, which is a great thing to begin a conversation about the effectiveness and the relevance of existing school councils. 
schools that have a geographical location in countries that have signed up to the United Nations Declaration on Rights of the Child have to allow Article 12 to be present within their schools. The right for young people to express themselves freely on decisions that affect them. Now, this is a kind of legal backing to school councils. And I am regularly challenged by the limitations that um, are, are placed on the development of political literacy. You don't have to go very far in the news to see examples of potentially the future world leader of the free world, if you like, um, being a reflection perhaps of the, the level to which we have invested in political literacy education. And, you know, this bothers me a lot. I think that traditional power dynamics are deeply challenged by democratic education. Because democratic education takes agency away from that passive, narrative, sage-on-the-stage teacher. And, and, and I'll be honest, I've been one of those. <laughs> I've, I'm guilty because that was my um, student experience. And I think a lot of the time, progress and change happen reluctantly because we often believe, because we survived it and we went through it, that it's kind of okay that our kids would do it, that our kids would suffer the experience of education. Well, that's just utter madness, isn't it? So the democratic education ideals that I see in the International, Democrat, International Democratic Education Network um, schools present to me a real beacon of what co-creation and ownership of, of that learning journey might look like. Um, and I think they, they are about instant feedback. They're about um, really engaging in democratic process. And they have the capacity to create transformative learning experiences for young people. So we should, and I hope we will, uh, seek to explore some of those schools and the risks and challenges that are presented by the development of their programs. So there we have it, active learning and democratic education as being two of the, the, the main kind of ingredients of this, of the foundations of the School of Meta podcast. And the other two are about relevant learning. And relevant learning means to me that the curriculum which the young people are learning from, the curricula, are able to respond to the needs of the young person in a way that is genuine. Um, what's happening in the world is, is often quite scary. The environmental, economic and political and social upheaval that we see taking place, the, the challenges that are being um, presented to our population on those levels um, require us to uh, look at a new way to resolve them or to meet those challenges. I think it was 
it's often attributed to Einstein. I don't actually think it was Einstein who said it, but that to um, to do the same thing over and over again and expect a different result is a sort of indication of insanity. If we continue to dominate our learning environment with a passive narrative um, in communicative learning experience, then what on earth do we expect to happen? Are we really surprised then that certain leaders of the free world who might be candidates for presidency are there? Isn't that just symptomatic of the kind of state of play we find ourselves in that I think partly is a tribute to the education experience, not exclusively, but maybe what we seek or need is a new way to to kind of nurture our skills and topics and content within curriculum. So relevant learning to me is hugely important and I am not ashamed nor am I afraid of the advances of technology to support and enhance that experience. So I'd really like to open dialogue and explore those kind of advances. It's amazing actually that our students and young people have access to such a wide range of information and resources. But does our learning experience really reflect that? Not always. I'm deeply concerned that our current education system generates a sort of passive, anxious materialist who leaves further or higher education in great debt and who then suffers and struggles to have a really profound understanding of what success might be in a way that is a successful measure of, of, of uh, sorry, a sustainable measure of success. It's not going to be possible for our planet to maintain the levels of growth that we have experienced. With seven pushing eight billion people on planet Earth, is it really possible that we can provide success at the same rate of materialistic gain than we've seen? The answer is, of course it's not. And so these challenges and competitions to access further and higher education, how useful are they, really? Is there something different that we can be doing with our curriculum that would actually allow young people to lead flourishing, successful and happy lives? that don't just mean that the best way for us to measure success is by a place at Harvard or Oxford. So I'm, I'm, I'm willing to open everything to scrutiny. I, I don't think anything of the educational experience is sacred. And um, provided that we can identify that it's there because it meets the best interests of the child, then it should probably stay there. But let's let's explore things at the risk of upsetting the apple cart. Let's let's allow people who want to maintain the status quo to be deeply threatened by this thinking. It should be deeply threatening because we require a deeply transformative experience. And the final part of this foundation for the School of Meta podcast is the idea that spiritual literacy has a place in the the day-to-day experience of young people. 
Now, what on earth do I mean by spiritual literacy? Well, in every school I've worked in, we've banged on about reflection. And we've talked about reflection as being this great and wonderful tool that will help children make informed choices. But in actual fact, I kind of think reflection has, has killed its very intention to provide and support reflection. I mean, I'm, I'm as guilty as the next person. I've, I've devised reflection sheets for poor behaviour in schools. And I think, what the hell was I doing? You know, like, if we really want to enhance reflection, then we need to look at things like contemplation, and we might need to think about meditation and mindfulness as ways in which we can enhance our capacity to respond to stimuli. Spiritual literacy does not mean developing or promoting an orthodoxy of religion. What I think it means is providing regular experiences with young people that there is something bigger than their individual self that is worth tuning into and knowing about. Um, sometimes I feel that might be better called sort of the sharing of transcendent experiences. Um, and it might be that within science there is time given over to the wonder and awe of our solar system and universe, that they might actually explore readily the works of someone like Carl Sagan or Carl Sagan, depending on how you pronounce his second name, and, and look at this profoundly beautiful cosmology that affects us. It doesn't mean that young people can or should be subjected to a religious orthodoxy. I don't even know if I think that's what should happen. But I worry that our sort of dominant thinking around secular and, dare I call it, atheistic thinking is actually not supporting and helping young people take ownership of their own life experiences and life journey. You know, life is a bit challenging. It will be challenging for all of us. All of us will experience death. All of us will experience grief and bereavement. All of us will experience challenges that we need deep resources to respond to. I listened yesterday morning to a report on the rates in which we are giving um, antidepressant drugs to young people under the ages of 25. And it's horrific. You know, why are we doing that? Why do we think that the best way to support our young people through their challenging lives is to medicate them. Isn't it better to give them tools to make sense of our world and to provide them with access to that kind of deeper meaning? And I, I, I'm, I'm a passionate believer that actually evoking and supporting an, an, an understanding of our interconnectedness actually supports people feel less lonely and, and allows them the skills and attributes to to be more compassionate and kind with their lives. And I think that's what we desperately seek and, and crave. And if you, if you don't believe that, then have a look at the astonishing effect and resonance that the mindfulness movement has had recently. I mean, why is it that mindfulness is everywhere? How, how do you feel about that as an educator? I, I have mixed feelings. I've been involved in mindfulness education for a while now. And I think that there's, 
great value in providing skills to support mindfulness education. And I, I often think of Kurt Hahn's Principles of Salem, where he talked about making sure that in the school day, young people experience periods of silence. And I wonder if what we're talking about is developing a kind of compassionate or contemplative wisdom with young people. And it's that that I think we could open and explore a real and exciting um, curriculum with. So, so there are those four, four tenets, active learning, democratic education, spiritual literacy, and a relevant curriculum. That they, they seem to me to be the four things that we, that we need to, to explore deeply. And what I mean explore deeply, I repeat that idea that everything is open to say, to scrutiny, sorry, and nothing is sacred, that we should be looking at the, the, the reasons why schools are developed and organised the way they are, with a, demo, with a, with a really scrutinising lens of democratic education. Why is it that administration and school leaders are in the positions they are? And what would actually fully enhance the learning experience of kids? And, and I suspect that what I'm saying and what we will be exploring it is a challenge. And as I said before, good. So there are the four foundations. And now we fast forward in time to the discussion Christine and I had. But how do we get that, you know, how do we do it? I'm a, I'm a Dewey person, you know, I'm not a Dewey Dewey person, not a John Dewey, but a, I'm a doer. <laughs> Well, let's talk about those four things a little bit, shall we? Did you 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 put together some kind of responses to those things? Did you, you you? But what did you think? I'm being interrupted by a small seven-year-old boy. What's the matter, Grumpy? What are you looking for? A rabbit. A rabbit. Have you got it? Yeah. All right, cool. Nice man. Do shut the door on the way out, old bean. Thanks, brother. Seen a bit. Did you have a rabbit? Did you did you found the rabbit? Yeah, and he's gone. <laughs> um. Yeah, so let let's let's maybe uh, let's maybe extract some of that stuff a bit here, mate. Those four kind of ideas, and I, I was curious to know how you responded to them, really, and maybe I could answer questions if if I wasn't being clear enough. Do you okay? Well, I'll I'll just basically summarize. Yeah. Um, how did you how did you come about these these four? Yeah. Oh gosh. Um, like the four areas that you felt you really wanted to kind of look at in terms of creating a new paradigm for education? I guess I quite like the idea of things coming in sets, you know. So initially, you know, why four and not five or whatever? Um, I, I, I was kind of fixated by the idea that, there's, that, that there has to be a new way. That the, the, the old way of education for me seems to me increasingly redundant in the face of um, kind of technology that meets our needs of memory and retention right um, I, I I think that I was just trying to think about this last night we had people around for dinner we had a conversation about something somebody forgot a quote <coughs> so they got out their iPhone Right. And, and they and they produced the quote and that 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 need that maybe we had when we grew up to retain that information 
and be able to quote something verbatim, uh, you know, in a social or in a, you know, a work environment, that's changed, right? And, and, and so I looked at something that I thought would go deeper than that. And my experience was that the thing we required for kids was a way to provide them with, with a kind of toolbox so that they could make informed choices and decisions in, in meaningful ways that would allow them to flourish and be successful. And I found this tool I thought was the answer to all of the ills of the school. <laughs> and I was like a total convert. And the tool, what was it, six years ago was uh, mindfulness. All right? right. And I thought, this is the thing. This is such a wonderful thing. It's going to kind of revolutionise so you were the one who discovered it. I found it. No one else had, <laughs> had ever heard of it. <laughs> I, 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 I found it. Um, the University of Bangor in North Wales were running a course and I had a kind of expansive professional development budget and I asked if I could go and away I went. And I, I was kind of blown away by it at the time. I thought this was the genuinely the sort of panacea, you know, and I... And so, and so this was the kind of hook for me. This is what got me into thinking that how, how about rather than just kind of flogging the dead horse and everybody telling each other how rubbish education is, let's look for something that would be a kind of a salvation. And as you and I have talked about, mindfulness wasn't the only answer, right? In actual fact, I don't even think it's an answer at all. I think it's a I very... I think it's an evolutionary step. Go on. Well, I don't want to interrupt your thinking. I just did. Sorry. <laughs> no, good. No, I, li I like it when there's that uh, interruption because that's where I think... I mean, I've got a thread that I can, I can continue sort of indefinitely, but I'd like to know why you think it's an evolutionary step for sure. Well, I think sometimes we have to stumble upon those things in order to uncover what's, what we're authentically trying to get at via that avenue. And so I think... I know for myself, because I did that, I did the mindfulness training as well. Um, I did it at Omega Institute in New York about, I don't know, five years ago with a group from San Francisco. Um, mindful, yeah, mindful schools. And I did the curriculum training and I thought, yep, yeah, we're going to do this in the school. And, you know, I would do it really differently now. I know what I would be getting at, and you and I have spoken about that. But I do think that was an important... It's a recognition that something... We're not giving kids a really important tool that they need. And you spoke about that in your talk about reflection, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. let's beat another dead horse here. Reflection. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So... No, I... I you see... I think I like what you mean then by evolutionary step. Do you mean that in order for us to go deeper into this kind of landscape, that mindfulness is a good way in? Is that, is that kind of how you see it? No. Oh. <laughs> I, wouldn't, I wouldn't go back there. Yeah. However, I think it's opened a new exploration and that might not have been possible had I not done that 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 step. And I think even for a lot of teachers from the trainings I've been in, it's their first experience with 
any kind of internal practice right. of any sort, that in itself it can be gold in a school, you know? So I think there can be some good things in it as well. I definitely would do it differently. I'm not, I don't, don't ask me how, but I would. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think that's a, that's a rabbit hole that we could go down for an hour and a half. So we probably better come back to it at another time. But I, I, I think that for me, what I, what I noticed from the mindfulness practice as I, as I got deeper into it on a personal level, on a professional level, and then as a teacher of mindfulness, was that actually um, it presented me with some complicated questions that I, that I couldn't answer in what I felt was quite a sort of linear, packaged program. Mm. I, I needed to go well beyond that. So I'm very grateful for, for mindfulness for doing that. Um, but I needed then to look at, and this is where these kind of four things really came from. What, what does it look, what does contemplation and decision-making and reflection and these things that we all bundle in together and confuse and, and certainly confuse the kids with, what, what does that, what could that look like if it was a really sharpened, honed device that we could, we could facilitate kids' development with? Mm. And I felt that was, that was huge. And then I, I realised that there was a kind of spiritual dimension to the to the mindfulness practice and you know i'm a i'm a kind of rational thinking quite like peer-reviewed science journals not too cool on the esoteric but fascinated by it kind of guy and i but i recognize that there is something much bigger than ourselves that needs exploring and 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 it needs exploring for young people too and I'm talking about the cycle of living and dying. I'm talking about, you know, understanding our place in the world, how we explore success and and how we attribute meaning to things. Um, the development of awe. Yeah, I love a bit of awe. Yeah. And wisdom. I think that those are, those are skills and, no, they're not skills, those, those are kind of chapters in the story that have been pulled out in the last 20 odd years that I think we need to rewrite and put back in again, actually. And, um, and so for me, th this is where, this is the kind of, the territory. How could we create a, a school environment that, that, that nurtured reflection, that supported a, a kind of awareness of the spiritual, but I don't think I want to call it that, that, that was able to, to be relevant and to meet the needs of the young people in in our modern age or our postmodern age and that but that also like we've already started touching on is this idea that maybe pulled away some of that power dynamic that that the teacher was the kind of the center of the experience and so those were the sort of the four bits that i that i that i come up with because i think i look at it from a point of view which is what do these young people need to to meet the rather scary proposition of of the world as it stands. I mean, I don't, I don't want to be a kind of, you know, I, I don't want to be driven by fear. This isn't the rationale behind what we're choosing to do. But for me, there is a kind of a foolishness in continuing to use the old system of education to address problems that we face in the world, economic, political, environmental, 
you know, using the same model over and over again and assuming that it's going to actually create opportunities to, to meet these problems. I just don't think it is. And, yeah. so, and that, yeah. so that's where I find myself. And I think that's where you find yourself too. Very much so, yeah. And on a personal note, and then I, I want to ask a little bit more about yeah. your notion of democratic education, but another really big personal motivation for me and, and is for me is the idea of creating healthy schools that are um, sane, <laughs> yeah. um, that make choices that preserve the well-being of the individuals within the, the organization, you know, whether it be teachers or whether it be kids. I saw, I've seen a lot of burned out teachers. I've seen a lot of, and burned out teachers don't deliver good programs to kids, you know? So I, I think it's really important that the whole, that, that whole, I don't know quite how to express it, kind of the word that comes to mind is like a cradle, you know? You want to just make sure that that container is, is is functioning properly, that it's its own little functioning ecosystem in a sense. So that's on a personal level, but yeah. When I was looking at new school models and trying to create a school, I think one of the most, for me, one of the more important things was to really keep it simple. And I know that sounds simple, <laughs> but um, to really focus on what it was we wanted to do well and to do it as well as we could, you know? M-E-T-T-A. So why are these podcasts called A School of Meta? Well, Meta is a Pali word. A Pali is an ancient Indian language which has its roots in the canon of Buddhist and Dharmic theology and metta means loving kindness or compassion. Now why not call this the school of kindness? Well there is a huge work of an age of nearly two and a half thousand years around metta practice that I think is worth exploring and looking at. Um, I'm not the only one. Stanford University have developed a compassion training course. The work of Thubten Jinpa and Fearless Heart. Thubten Jinpa was the Dalai Lama's translator and he's written several books and his more recent book is called A Fearless Heart. It explores the power and transformative power of compassionate thinking. And I suspect that compassion will take the place of mindfulness in the next round and next wave of the way we explore contemplative thinking. And so, you know, I, I questioned it because it obviously has a Buddhist root and obviously people are sometimes uh, concerned or, or frightened by sort of a religious um, affiliation. But I, um, I'm not a Buddhist, although I read a lot of Buddhist work and I do meditate. But I think that it's actually really important to declare the provenance of things. Algebra, which is a Arabic concept developed in the Muslim world, is taught readily in schools 
all, all over the world, as I'm sure you know. Meditation has been changed to mindfulness. But read John Kabat-Zinn's work and explore the roots of mindfulness and you will see they are directly found in his research and years of exploration around the Anapanasati Sutta, one of the Buddhist texts, and the work of the and work and practice of Vajrayanan and Theravadan Buddhists. And I think it's really important to declare these provenances when we work with young people, because I think truth is a is a vital element to what they're learning. I, I, I feel that it's worth sharing the meditative backgrounds of mindfulness that aren't exclusive to Buddhism. There is meditative practice in all of the world's major religions. And we live in a time where we have a sort of dominant thinking around this secular, dare I call it, atheistic approach to education. And, I, and I'd like to posit the question, although I don't have an answer, is how useful is that? What do, we, what do we need to give and support our kids in when we nurture their their kind of tribe? You know, which group are they going to belong to? Where are they going to go? And what are they going to seek within their communities that connects them to other people? Um, I don't, as I say, I don't want to be a kind of a advertisement for Buddhism, but I definitely think that it has its place in our conversations around education. And let's be really open and forthright about it. So that's why it's called Meta. And why School of Meta? Well, actually it's because I love the film School of Rock. And I have always enjoyed watching it. Well, I've probably seen it a hundred times now. And I particularly enjoy the idea of poking fun at the traditional teacher. Because I've been that traditional teacher and I suspect some of you listening have too. That traditional teacher is the person that takes themselves very seriously, that the learning experiences is about them, that they believe that, you know, they can march up and down in the, in the, uh, in the kids' classroom and, and, and steal their food and, you know, do nothing. And I probably haven't done all of those things, but I've definitely done some of them. And I, and I think that let's, let's explore, let's, let's, let's poke fun with humour at, at our own kind of egos about this. But I also think that what's interesting about the film School of Rock is that where the real learning takes place is where the kids are owning it. When they when they start developing that project and being in the band, you know, you can really kind of get the sense that they had fun and they were enjoying the making of it. And by the way, there's a fabulous um, video somewhere on YouTube where they reunited the cast and they played some of the songs with Jack Black at some music festival somewhere. And they're all a bit older. And it's hilarious to see what they all look like now. So do, do dig it out and have a look if you know the film. And if you don't, then watch it and, and enjoy it, I think, for what it is, which is actually, a, you know, a really fun, um, a really fun story. So, so there we have it. That's why this is called The School of Meta, a combination of understanding about loving kindness and that kind of slightly irreverent approach to how we should do things. And so, again, let's hear the discussion that Christine and I had about this. Well, I like, I do like the idea. Of course, I mean, you can't argue with loving kindness. It's not something that one 
would have an issue with, and for sure a school needs to be founded on it. And I think, well, it doesn't need to be, but the one that I would like to work in, I would, I would like to think that's a real tenet for what we're doing and developing, you know, a lot of the qualities that, that you and I have talked about. And, um, and I think for, you know, I don't, I don't come from a Buddhist tradition. I've read enough. Um, and I, you know, I do my own practice. It's, it's not, you know, being raised Catholic, I think put me off anything that's organized and, um, and, uh, and too formalized, but I certainly appreciate the teachings and, and, and they're, they're secular enough, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think they can be, and I think sometimes they aren't. And I, I kind of subscribe to a, a, a belief in, I, I kind of, I call it a belief in Buddhism, but my understanding of Buddhism why I think it has value to my life and may have value to others' lives in that this is a sort of practice that can actually reduce suffering in human existence. And and for that reason alone, it's got yeah. to be worth looking at. Right? That's a really, really... Thank you for that, because that just summarizes it for me. Yeah. And so from that level, yeah, you want to reduce suffering, you want to... You know, we want a happy school. We want we want to raise our happiness level and and our well being and and those kinds of things don't come about by accident necessarily in the schools we're presently. Yeah, um, yeah. we're presently well. Neither of us presently working in, but um, we often forget that our existence is is fraught with great uncertainty and. It is is a, a journey which ends in death and has, you know, suffering attached to it. So th at the very least, I kind of feel we we owe it to our young people to provide them with a sort of a literacy around suffering that gives them a chance at managing it, you know. And Well, I certainly I never wanted to, as a teacher, although I'm sure I did, contribute to the false beliefs that lead to suffering. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, and so I think in that regard, just becoming more conscious um, of how and what we teach and, and the way we approach those exact topics of life um, mm. and how we explore that together. Uh, I think that's 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 the sort of pathway that I would like to tread cautiously down. Do you think there's anything we need to kind of no, I think maybe just invite people if they listen and they want to contribute or if there's something they could add to the conversation or great. I think we're both kind of just reaching out and, and looking to make to build our connections with with other people who are. I think exactly so. And, and I think actually the way you just expressed it is probably how I'm going to leave it. And there you have it. Thanks for listening all the way through to the end of our first or second School of Meta podcast. If you'd like to get in touch because you've been inspired or annoyed or intrigued by some of the things we've said, then please do so on Twitter. Um, our handle is School of Meta. 
That's M-E-T-T-A, as you may have heard spelled out a few times. Um, and please tune in for the next episode. We will be posting it on our School of Meta page on Twitter and on Facebook. Thanks. <laughs>